This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, it's Robbie. Coming up on today's edition of the Offscript podcast, we're in conversation with Booker Prize shortlisted author Avni Doshi. She's based right here in Dubai, and her debut novel, Burnt Sugar, won critical acclaim when it was published last year. It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and Avni takes us on that journey. Seven years it took her to write the book, and what a ride it's been. We'll also talk about the greatest resignations of all time. This, after a particularly uncaring CEO decided to let go of 900 people via a Zoom call. Meanwhile, Formula One is heading to a riveting climax right here in the nation's capital. It's Lewis Hamilton bidding for his eighth title, taking on the young upstart Max Verstappen, and it's all gone down to the wire. They are level on points heading into the final Grand Prix of the year in Abu Dhabi. We catch up with commentator Damien Reed, and we debate it all in a sports special. The Off Script Podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. We are talking about character development because we're in conversation with Avni Doshi. She wrote Burnt Sugar. It was shortlisted for a Booker Prize last year. And it's fair to say that once that sort of took off, it became an overnight success and it turned her world upside down. She received countless messages from people who've read it, say it's changed the way that they view and they actually go about conducting their relationships with those closest to them. The Radio 1 presenter in the UK Annie Mack says of the novel, rich without ever overdoing it, sensory and visceral, yet stripped back the hardest skill to do in writing. When the heck did Annie Mack become a book reviewer? Well, she's on the Booker Prize website, oh, so she might, might have some kind of affiliation. Oh, fair. But uh, that sort of intrigued me. Where did this writing ability, where did this ability to write in such a visceral style come from? I put that question to Avni. You know, it's funny. I went through so many drafts of writing this novel where I really struggled with finding a style. And I, I think I, I was in this. And I think that's why these previous drafts never worked, because I couldn't really find that voice and that style. Um, I, I was very preoccupied with trying to sound sophisticated and novelistic. And I didn't realize that perhaps the real sophistication might just be, just might emerge from being myself in a way. And, and, you know, I think that was a big lesson to kind of be myself on the page um, and to really find what spoke to me rather than what I imagined a book should sound like. I think that's really that that conflict between the inner voice and the outer voice, you know, what people tell you externally. I think it's really difficult to figure out where to sit in that spectrum. It would be an interesting exercise to because, you know, one of the things that if I had to do something that was like a big project, I think writing a book would be would be uh, up there. You've got a, a wonderful writing ability, mm. Rob. If anyone in this room is capable of doing that, I think it would be you closely followed by Sono and there'd be a big drop to me. No, well, you've just already proven that your character that you've created... Oh, that's just me talking utter has drivel, legs. mate. That's yeah, but Do you think Snowden. you would ever actually explore that? What, that character? Yeah. No. Better things to do in my life, my man. And listen, that's no disrespect. Of course, writing a book is wonderful, but no, uh, no, I've got no 
propensity, no desire to write said book about an orphan <laughs> who goes on to become a prodigious... Do you think you'll ever write a book, Sam? Uh, no, because I was telling you earlier, I'm quite in awe of people who are able to tackle something this complex. Because yeah. you think of how much planning is going into it, that you're considering the storyline and your characters and finding the right kind of resolution, doing the dialogue. I mean, to me, that just makes me... Mm. There's so much involved in that. The level of focus that you would need mm. to have really blows me away. Yeah. Well, this book is set in Pune. It centers around the relationship between the protagonist of the book, Anthera, and her mother, Tara. The opening line, the very first line of the book reads, I would be lying if I said my mother's misery has never given me pleasure. Wow. And that's where you get burnt sugar from. It's that combination of bitterness and sweetness and that relationship, which is fundamentally very sort of resentful and yet dutiful as well. Did you you write the synopsis, Robbie? I mean, that was... Powerful stuff. <laughs> sweetness. Oh, come on. No, well, I probably, probably just read the synopsis on Wikipedia or what have you, or maybe even on the Booker website. But anyway, without giving too much away, the mother, Tara, in this instance, is not a nice person. She kind of neglected Anthra as a mother, and now she has early onset Alzheimer's, and Tara is forced to care for her. And it kind of it details that sort of kind of tug of war, that uh, internal oh. struggle. Um, Avni says, obsession, memory, and the boundaries of the self are the novel's main themes. Uh, it took seven years to write. Numerous drafts were written, and then they hit the scrap heap before she made the big breakthrough, and I asked her to sort of explain how that came about. At the beginning of writing the final draft, and I kind of sat down, at that point I had written so many drafts. I had written notes and note cards, and I had tried to do these elaborate maps of how the plot would go. And every time I would try to kind of follow that itinerary I had set for myself, I would reach these climactic moments in the telling of the story and they would just feel completely dead, just lifeless. And when I sat down to write this draft, I thought, hang on, I'm not going to plan. I'm not going to plot. I'm just going to follow, you know, just follow like, this energy, this energy of this narrator. And it just began to emerge in the voice. And it was so clear and it was so concise. And she was so, um, I could just feel this bitterness and rage simmering right below the surface. And I was just compelled. And after a couple of days, I felt that Anthara was really sitting in the room with me and just talking to me. And that's really how the book came out. That's really how the whole thing emerged. And um, that was when I knew, okay, this is this is the draft. This is going to be the one I send out in the world. Whether or not it gets read, whether or not anybody likes it, I knew that this is kind of the story I wanted to tell. And that after all was kind of academic whether anyone liked it or not it was always a struggle with herself to try and get to a point where she felt she had written something that she was happy with (laughs) and she sort of even said to me she doesn't even feel like it's truly finished even the book it's kind of it's there it's it's what she came out with but it feels incomplete almost even to this day i asked avni actually what some of the best reactions she got to the book were and who the book seemed to resonate most with and she had this to say i had so many people sending me messages saying that in fact the book was so deeply affirming um, that they had so many feelings of ambivalence, that they had these difficult relationships, that they had these complicated feelings, these feelings that were in fact so dark that they were difficult to own. And people I think were just kind of relegating those feelings to the shadow. And there's a way in which I think the book 
created a space where people could bring that all up into light and um, could maybe talk about these things and and say, you know, yes, I too have wanted revenge. You know, something as dark as revenge. We don't like to talk about revenge. Our culture is so, oh, let's all live in the light. Let's all be bright. We don't have dark thoughts or dark fantasies. And but I think the truth is everyone does have them. And, and you know, they're, they're, we are as much light as we are dark. And so uh, there's a way in which the book allowed people to inhabit that dark place and, and give it a voice. And I think that's so deeply um, soothing because there's a way when we don't acknowledge those dark parts of ourselves that they kind of fester, you know, and, and then we begin to act them out in ways that we're not conscious of, and they can be self-sabotaging, but there's a way in which when you bring it up into consciousness, when you bring it up into light, when you bring it up, when you can talk about it, when you can give it a name, I think that makes it um, easy to be in relationship with. So that is, in, in many ways, what the book struck a chord with for a lot of people who probably felt that they weren't allowed to really express or even have these, harbour these feelings of resentment. And they read this book and, of course, they realised that perhaps that was it was a more common thing to go through than, than you might imagine. Yeah, totally. And we live in this, what I think some people have called like a toxic positivity culture. Yes. Where you have to be positive all the time, 100% of the time. Otherwise, you're looked at, down on as being a negative person. And to enable people to feel like I can think about, I can, as she was saying, I can identify with certain negative emotions or feelings I have and not feel like I'm a bad person mm. for it. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. But of course, it did tackle this book, some very sensitive subject matter, and it sort of exposed maybe shortcomings in a culture perhaps, that, or at least elements of a culture that, that some people would, would take very personally and would potentially get offended by. So I asked her, did she experience some negative reaction? And, and of course, the answer was that she did. Absolutely. I think you can read all the reader reviews. They're so pol they're so polarized. There's like all these five-star reviews and all these one or zero-star reviews where people are just so, so angry. Um, I think people, you know, I think what really disturbed a lot of people was this difficult mother-daughter relationship. I can understand that. You know, motherhood is kind of this last safe space. But what happens when you allow a mother to be human and to be a very flawed human who makes mistakes and who's utterly selfish? And uh, what happens when you write a book about characters who just are not necessarily likable and who don't really care if you like them or not? And, you know, that I think because we live in a kind of people pleasing world. So it's 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 difficult to be around maybe characters like that for the length of the novel. And, and I totally understand that. Um, I had some interesting comments from people who said, oh, you know, her writing is so, um, it's so precise. It's so kind of um, strict the way she's written. It's so pared down. She's come straight out, out of some kind of MFA, you know, some kind of uh, writing master's program clearly. And that's whatever. But it's so funny. I've never done a writing program like that. So it's just funny. I think people are also projecting their own things onto the book, which is what art is. I think we all bring our own uh, questions and concerns and problems to to art. I think it provides a screen for all of us in that sense on which we project. 
I thought it was interesting there talking about the reviews because she seemed sort of unfazed by her zero star reviews. Let me ask you, if you'd spent seven years of your life writing a book, poured your heart and soul out into it, Chris, would you look at the Amazon reviews? Absolutely, I would. We get one negative text and I don't eat for days. That's why you're so skinny. (laughs) (laughs) We get a lot. Yeah, yeah, I would be looking. I'm one of those ones. I don't, you know, a lot of people say negativity. It's part of the world, right? There's always going to be someone that will look to knock you down. But hey, listen, I seek out the negativity. I I really do. I I look for it because I want to improve, right? You want to improve. I mean, thankfully, we don't get too much in all seriousness. But yeah, for these people who are there to be shot at in the public eye, I actually don't know how they do it. I mean, it's remarkable. I think quite sort of measured of her, just to kind of laugh it off, really, and yeah. accept that it's part and parcel of, of critical reaction anyway. And I think you can do that when you're securing yourself. That's it. Like, I think of any negative comments that we've gotten in, the only ones that actually stay with me are the ones that strike a chord where I'm like, oh, there's truth to that. Yeah, oh, yes. yeah, they, yeah, they hit, they can hit, hit to the bone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so please don't do that. <laughs> if you're going to say something truthful, make it nice. Um, <laughs> or just don't message. That's, that's another alternative. Great news for Avni professionally as well, actually. Very recently in the last Last couple of weeks, Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Deepa Mehta is set to adapt Burnt Sugar into a feature film. Avni says it will be very much Deepa's own vision. It will belong to her, and she's hopeful that she can have some kind of cameo in that. And it's also going to be turned into a stage play as well, apparently. Avni says it's very gratifying that the book has resonated with these very talented individuals. So check it out, Burnt Sugar. You can follow Avni on Instagram. She's Avni Doshi. And what a great honour it is to have such a talented author residing right here in Dubai. The Offscript Podcast. Let's talk about a particular story that has caused a lot of uproar. Yeah, this has been making headlines over the past few days, and it's all because of a mass layoff that's taken place. Now, the company is Better.com. They're a mortgage lender startup. Unfortunate name. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Better at what? Firing people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. They've received $750 million of cash infusion as part of their bid to go public. And the CEO, after that happened, Vishal Garg, has gone viral Oof. for letting go, in a very awkward video announcement, 900 of their employees. Let's have a little listen. This isn't news that you're going to want to hear, uh, but ultimately it was my decision and I wanted you to hear from me. It's been a really, really challenging decision to make. I've, this is the second time in my career I'm doing this and I do not, do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. Um, this time I hope to be stronger, but we are laying off about 15% of the company. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group being laid off. Game show. I mean, this is horrible. Your employment here is terminated. Is this Squid Game? <laughs> What the no, he hell? Just made it about himself. I cried the last time I oh did this. Oh my I hope god! To be stronger. That is horrendous right? and, on every level. And the dramatic pause. And if you're on this call, you're gone. <laughs> it's Simon Cowell, <laughs> it's essentially. It's so nasty. For those on this call. Well done! You made it through to the next round. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm laughing, but I feel I feel <sighs> sick with that actually. Yeah, it was not. That was not great. I mean, why did I he do it on know. Zoom? This is he not probably the first thought it was time. Being, being brave or something. Well, I don't know. I would imagine it's logistics. <laughs> when you're letting 900 people go, maybe... Do an email I, then. 
Oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about this, about HR and letting I've people go in the right never. etiquette. But I would say you always let somebody go face to face. Oh, you have to. Right? You have to do that. But what if, if it's what if it's 900 if people? If it's 900 people, you know what? You clear your diary for a couple of weeks. Um, you maybe need to... <laughs> A month. You get multiple people this, involved. You have a strategic team. You have to. I'm sorry. You yeah. cannot stick everyone on Zoom and then go through that yeah, rigmarole. No. This is the new the new world, isn't it? Everyone's working from home. So that I mean, if you're going to do everything else from home, you can get laid off from home as well. I mean, there's no sincerity to that. There's no, he's not speaking from it's the not, heart. Listen, it's personally it's, speaking, if I was part of the quote unquote unlucky group. I'd actually rather be told on Zoom than be dragged into the office just to be told then, there and then, Mm. in a really awkward kind of personal exchange. Just let me know on an email. Don't you think you feel undervalued? Just imagine, okay, now imagine you had, now this is a startup, so it's a little bit different. I don't know how long these employees have been working for them. It's a startup, but he's laying off 900 people. You know what, here, so-and-so, I would say, like, again, got to be careful because the bosses are listening, but you know what? We're all numbers. People can talk about a family environment. People can talk about we're one big unit and all this nonsense. Ultimately, I hate to burst bubbles, but we're all numbers. You're a number. Robbie's a number. I'm a number. No, 100%. I totally agree with you. But don't you think you would feel so much like a number as opposed to somebody having the personal touch to say, we appreciate what you've done, even if it is a bit of a script. But, you know, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to keep you on. It makes a difference, don't you think? Yeah, of course. Listen, I don't like the way he's done it there at all. Could he have been more sincere? Absolutely. I could have written a speech for him. But again, it's not about writing a speech. You want it to come from the heart. But ultimately, you're being laid off. So whether it's face-to-face or whether it's been told in the manner that he has, you're going to be bitter. Of course you are. You're losing your livelihood. Yeah. And this is not the first time this has happened in terms of the Zoom layoffs. Back in 2020 in May, Uber did the same. They announced the layoff of 3,500 employees, about 14% of its work uh, workforce on on a Zoom call as well. Mm. Well, that, this is just. So this the, seems this to be is, the direction. This is indicative of the fact that everything now takes place. Is everything's gone online because people are working from home. So this is simply the kind of last kind of bastion of what you would consider to be something that had to have been done face to face is now something you'd probably get offered a job over Zoom now. So why not get laid, laid off, off on, on Zoom? Zoom? I mean, okay, but then do you not have a one-on-one Zoom with your manager, your direct manager? I would be making calls. Right. Hmm. Absolutely. As opposed to just kind of this is a mass. Well, we've had a message and said there are assistants and managers for a reason. They can do the laying off as well. Charlie said, imagine putting on Google goggles and your manager doing the same, being laid off in the metaverse that you get a personal touch with expressions and emotions. Watch this space. And that's it, right? I mean, that's the future, isn't it? Then again, is is a digital laying off worse than a face-to-face laying off in the real world? Doesn't it just suck both times? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, getting laid off at any point would be horrendous. So, I mean, again, I just think there are ways and means. Sincerity. That's what it boils down to. And Finn, I love this bit. This is great. This reminds me of The Office where Ricky Gervais had to sack people and he goes, you're not losing your job. You're not losing your job. And then he misses someone out and then he goes, you're not losing your job. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Uh, Well, we decided to spin this on its head and instead look at former employees who had the last laugh. So we usually think of employers as being the ones to make these decisions about laying people off. But you know what? Every now and then a disgruntled employee decides to stick it to their former boss. And I am here for it. I I love these stories. I've got my dreams. I mean, I do genuinely fantasize 
about this one day. You know, if the, if the bosses rub you up the wrong way, let's say. Yeah. And I would love, and listen, I'm stitching They're you still listening, up. by the way. Well, maybe not now, it's getting late. But in terms of you two, I would be stitching you guys up here, but I'd love just the ultimate mic drop. Just not announce a thing mm. and just say, you know what, guys? I'm done. See you later. <laughs> and just walk out. Yeah. <laughs> I would, would love you do it at the start of the show. Just to, uh, just no, to make, make life uncomfortable through. for us. Oh, midway, midway, midway through. through. Okay. It's just gone half five, Chris. Wouldn't you do the whole show? Uh, no. Kind of last maybe hurrah? not. Maybe not. And then I just go, Chris, you've got the traffic. No, don't, Rob. You've got the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> I'm done. I <laughs> just stroll out. So unprofessional. Leaving us speechless on radio. Correct. But then there's a bit of a buzz. Yeah. Our three listeners are buzzing. What's happened? Has that just happened? Yeah, and I've gone out and I've just waved you goodbye, never to be seen again. Isn't there something about, even if you have a good relationship with your employer, and I'm fortunate that I've always left companies on a good note and there was no reason for any hostility, but even when it's a good relationship, anytime you're a bit disgruntled, you have this nice little fantasy of like yeah. really like doing an awful... I'm going to tell you yeah. the truth. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the truth. And yeah. you know what? I'm going to tell you the truth exactly. as well. Exactly. To the loo, and off I go. Yeah. Not to the loo. To the loo is yeah. a goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear someone's trying to wind me up it's uh Arib is saying that the american office is the best we've been through this we've had this conversation numerous times no it's not i'm sorry to tell you that but the original <laughs> the original office is the best Everyone's got their opinions wrong. shall we shall we get to this uh, yeah. particular story so exactly let's get to greg smith who worked at goldman sachs from 2000 to 2012 now a lot of people have ethical concerns about goldman sachs a lot of former employees have come out to say as much well he decided that instead of going quietly. He was going to announce his resignation in an op-ed in the New York Times. He called the environment at Goldman as toxic and destructive as I have ever seen it. So he basically just put it out there for the aired his dirty laundry for the entire world in the New York Times. Ooh. That's good. Yeah, right? They must have been licking their chops as well. Oh, yeah. This guy wants to resign in our paper. Yes, please. Mm. By the all th- means, Greg. The thing is, well, what he also said in this op-ed is today, if you make enough money for the firm and you're not currently an axe murderer, you will be promoted into a position of influence. So basically, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what type of person you are. You incentivize beyond all else. Oh. And this is no surprise to anybody that if you're working at Goldman, you're incentivized by profit. But basically saying that, you know, it doesn't really matter about your ethics at all. But it sort of back, backfired on him, didn't it? Because he then got criticized for cashing in. Well, he did a book deal for Why I Left Goldman Sachs, a Wall Street story. He took that op-ed, tried to put out a book, and he was labeled as a disgruntled one percenter because he had been turned down by Goldman for a one million dollar bonus. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you'll take the one million dollar bonus, but when you're not getting that, let's let's have a little outcry about the ethics. The op-ed was a great parting shot. The book deal, unfortunately, just exposed him as a greedy so-and-so. Yeah, exactly. So, and that kind of undermined his whole point, I think. Yeah, this is another one uh, in the UK that maybe you would have heard of. So I wonder what you think about this, Stephen Pollard was a journalist. Uh, He was working at the Daily Express. Right. He wasn't really a fan of the tabloid, sort of lowbrow content that he had to do. Uh, Shouldn't he work at the Daily Express then, should he? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, he gave his notice in 2001. He was moving on up to the Times of London. But in his final piece, his final column, he wrote a very boring piece on organic agriculture. But this is how it began. Farmers are hardly the most popular group in Britain. Up and down the country, areas are blighted by intensive farming practices. 
couple this with subsidies. Now, if you're paying attention... I'm getting this, yeah. Yeah, the start start of each sentence starts to spell out (laughs) the real message. Okay, we have to stop there, don't we? Yeah, the real message is an inappropriate phrase, and then Desmond, his boss... Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Bleep Desmond. Yeah. So let's just go back to that. Bleep Farmers you, are, the, are hardly the most popular group in Britain. That's the yep. first line. So yep. we can kind of get where this is going now, can't we? Second sentence is up and down the oh. country. Yeah. I know where you're going Yeah, with exactly. That. I think a lot of people do. Bleep you, Desmond. <laughs> but get, this also backfired because apparently his new bosses at the Times did not appreciate this prank of his. And they declined. They dropped the employment offer. And obviously he didn't stay... At his he didn't, Daily Express post. Apparently, he still now writes occasionally for his old boss, Desmond. Oh, really? Because, you know, everybody's got to pay the bills. Oh, wow. And I guess Desmond, Desmond didn't hold a grudge. Yeah. Well, he's a tabloid editor. Yeah. Forgive and forget. Yeah, I guess Move so. <laughs> How about this one? Sun Microsystems. This is from 2010. The CEO, Jonathan Schwartz, became the first major executive to resign over tweet. And not just that, he did it in a haiku because, of course, those 140 characters, right? Financial crisis. Stall too many customers. CEO, no more. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm not sure I approve of that. No, come on. That's quite amusing. Are you not amused by that? But that's not official. He's written a goodbye haiku on Twitter. That's not an official resignation. It's not even a good haiku. It's a cryptic clue to a crossword puzzle. (laughs) Yeah, he's a CEO of a company that no one really cares about as well. Here's one from Groupon. Andrew Mason resigned in 20... Well, the thing is, is he didn't really resign. He got let go. But he still made a very honest email in his sort of departing to to the people that he worked... um, that he was leading. He said, after four and a half intense and wonderful years as CEO of Groupon, I've decided that I'd like to spend more time with my family. Just kidding. I was fired today. If you're wondering why, you haven't been paying attention. Oh, no. <laughs> he wrote quite a honest and Appraisal. humorous humorous email to say goodbye to everybody. And he took full responsibil- uh, responsibility for Groupon's you know, fall around that time. Because obviously at one point they were at a peak and then, you know, their fortunes fell a little bit. And he took responsibility for that. Um, He did still cash in on tens of millions of dollars. So, you know, there is a reason why he didn't have to be so glum about saying goodbye. Uh, Yeah, he he just was a bit lighthearted in his email. Mm. Um, Another very famous one, this is one of my favorites, is the the flight attendant for JetBlue. This was back in 2010. I wonder if you'll already know where I'm going with this. Stephen Slater. Essentially what happened was he asked a passenger to take her seat. As they were taxiing, the passenger continued to remove luggage from the overhead bin. Slater went to approach her and the suitcase fell and hit Slater in the head. And so Slater says, can you please apologize for this? You know, you aren't supposed to be up taking your baggage from the overhead bin. The passenger cursed him out. Oh. Okay. And then he just lost it. He just, have you heard this story? He no. basically picked up, you know, the um, announcement. The tannoy. Over the tannoy. Yeah. He picked yeah. up that and made an announcement. He made an announcement and he just lets loose with all of these swear words, just directing it at the passenger. But then just everybody grabs a beverage from the car, yells, it's been great. And then activates the emergency chute <laughs> and slides away. Oh, I am loving Mr. Slater. And then was apprehended as soon as he got to the bottom of, of the chute. Of course, because he got in charge. He got charged with criminal mis- and reckless endangerment, but he um, 
was writing a book about his uh, time as a, as a flight attendant, but also selling T-shirts, let it slide, to pay off legal bills. Oh, wow. I quite like that. I'm if you're sure, going out, go out with a bang. I've definitely told this story on the show before, but you know, I told you I was uh, on Silver Jet's last of a flight yes, with Mark are. Hughes. Yes, what are. is Silver Jets? Uh, Silver <laughs> Jet was, uh, it was a kind of business class airline a very niche sort of airline and I got some random press trip where we ended up on this airline and, and it was supposed to be oh there was, it was a plane for maybe 30 people on it 40 people on it it was kind of not a private jet but it was not a commercial airliner either okay, it was kind right. of in between right. which is probably why it failed and um, I think it was 2008 so it was around about that whole financial crash Care time about the environment that much Rob? no listen it was a press trip <laughs> Again, environmental issues weren't pressing at, the, at that stage. You know, they weren't top of the front and centre. Uh-huh. Of course, I gratefully accepted the chance to go on it. And sat next to me was old Sparky Hughes. Yeah, and he'd just been out to talk about Manchester City yeah. and the job there. That, that was the reason why he was on the flight. Anyway, captain comes on, the usual spiel. Uh, you know, we're going to be cruising at an altitude of 35,000 feet and all that sort of stuff, going through his whole thing. And then he goes, and just one further thing... Uh, Difficult, actually, to uh, <laughs> confess to this, but this will be the last ever commercial flight operated by Silverjet. We were booked on a return flight. <laughs> so he was flying us out to London and we were supposed to go back. He goes, yeah. rest assured that uh, all of your arrangements to return to the United Arab Emirates will be taken care of by other airlines. We'll make sure we will do everything in our power. But unfortunately, <laughs> finances have not been good. We were all told in an email, unfortunately, earlier this <laughs> week that uh, this would be our final flight so please do enjoy kick back relax and he did all that Ooh. and we're all kind of going what the so we got there <laughs> did you sort of, there was this morbid atmosphere yeah. we were just poor old silver jets the last yeah. time they're gonna fly and sure enough it was you were on it rob did you kick sparky the hughes didn't look too amused either <laughs> did you kick the behind out of it i, I think i fell asleep actually <laughs> Of course you did. And yeah, we had to get make our own way back on another airline. Oh. They don't, I'm not asking in, for the violin. In business class, right? Yeah. No, it wasn't, unfortunately. Oh, no. oh, Horrendous oh. downgrade. Yeah. There we go, the economy of the <laughs> But it was, just, it was just great that the captain, you know, in the usual kind of monotone, yeah. they're capable of... He was trying to inject a bit of emotion in there, but it just sounded like they were cruising at 35,000 yeah. feet. Exactly. That's all, that, you know, that's it. The Off Script Podcast. Talk about a sporting bow last night for Jeddah and Saudi Arabia in the Grand Prix. It was, and I got I got uh, back home at around about oh about into about the tenth or eleventh lap. The race right. had been stopped, so I picked it up as the the drivers were waiting patiently in the pits for the restart, which was a standing start, a standing restart. Mm. It was then utter chaos at the restart. Much Hamilton Hamilton it. went for it. He got ahead. Verstappen retook, and then they were stopped again due to debris on the track there was another crash they then finally restarted Hamilton crashed into the back of Verstappen who was accused by Hamilton of driving dangerously and recklessly not for the first time this season and it was just it was drama and incident on every single lap there was overtaking there was points of controversy there were complaints coming from the radio it was amazing it really was and you know what it boils down to as well sporting drama what have we often said on the show over the years Rob that you know these these guys and gals they're robots at times there's not enough rivalry there's not enough narrative you can bet your life Lewis Hamilton Max Verstappen do not see eye to eye we know that Total Wolf the Mercedes boss does not see eye to eye with his opposite number in Team Red Bull that being Christian 
Christian Horner. There is needle there. You've got two guys, one who wants to break the record, one who wants to become an eight-time world champion, become the greatest driver without question that F1 has ever seen. You've got one guy at 24 years of age bidding to win his first of what he will hope would be many in the shape of Max Verstappen. Last night, I was on the edge of my seat. I loved every single second of it. I'm not a bandwagon jumper. I've been an F1 fan for a long time. We've not always been in love with the sport because we felt at times it was processional, that it was a bit farcical. Let's call it what it is at times. But we've got two rival teams. The needle's there. They are both doing everything in their power to win this world championship. And you know the best thing about it? It's coming down to Abu Dhabi. And if you've got a ticket, you lucky so-and-sos because it's going to be box office. Yeah, it really is. And it has raised the points with the Dutchman currently tied on points with Lewis Hamilton. It is that close. I, th- I, I honestly don't think, has it ever come down to a final race it where has. drivers have been level on points? Uh, I can't recall. I, I need to go and Damien Reed, who will be catching up within 10 minutes, will, will know better than I am. Uh, of course, it has gone down to the final race before it's gone yeah. down to the final race. Not long ago, Nico Rosberg and, and Lewis Hamilton. But the fact that these men are joint on the top of that driver's well, standings. It. It's a winner-takes-all winner for takes them. 369.5 points each. For Verstappen, though, crucially, if they were to both crash out, and this is important to right, point exactly. out, that Max Verstappen would actually walk away with the title courtesy of the fact that he's won nine Grand Prix this year. Lewis Hamilton has won eight. And the reason why they're tied is that British Grand Prix that Hamilton won and Max Verstappen did not complete. Yes. Which has allowed Hamilton's win there to be worth so much more mm-hmm. than the nine wins all nine of Max Verstappen's wins so 17 wins between them and only four other drivers have registered one solo win each this season Valtteri Bottas Sergio Perez Daniel Ricciardo and Esteban Ocon who drove brilliantly he last did. night did Ocon he just picked wasn't he Valtteri Bottas I think on the last lap just managed to squeeze past Esteban Ocon to finish third Mercedes again they'll win the Constructors Championship and it isn't amazing it is a team sport but yet the Constructors Championship is concerned to merely a footnote it is all about who is the creme de la creme it's not really a team sport I know it is but let's be honest I know but it's all about the champion it is all about the the driver that wins the most points and I cannot wait honestly I'm giddy put it this way would you know would you know the constructors list of of championships where of course we all know that Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton are tied on seven championships invariably whoever the driver is that wins the championship invariably it will be their team that wins the constructors championship as well but yeah we're just we're we're in for a thrilling end and I know we're going to be on air right here we're going to have various reporters down there at Yas Marina Circuit I'll make no apologies for this come five o'clock on next Sunday or this coming Sunday there's only one bleeding thing we're talking about and that will be the F1 you will get blow by blow accounts that start will be all important yeah I believe you are Chris unfortunately and I'm not giving that one up I'm afraid Uh, I'm actually heading down there to see the qualifying on Saturday so looking forward to that and and the qualifying carries obviously all the importance in the world we know that traditionally Abu Dhabi Yas Marina circuit has not been a track that favours overtaking now they've made dramatic changes to the track I was actually chatting to um, a guy that works down there at the Yas Marina circuit and he was saying that some of the changes they've made really will be quite impactful They've, mm. they've made it a much faster track, the track. They've taken out some of those hairpins and they've just added more speed. They've given more options on different parts of the track, particularly that little circuit that winds its way through the Yas Marina Hotel. Um, that, that will allow for more opportunities for overtaking. Now, whether it's as bonkers as the track in Jeddah, which I, I'm, not, I'm, sh- I'm surprised in a way that that track passed kind of health yeah. and safety muster. I was looking at that thinking... 
they're looking like they're going to crash on every single turn it here. It felt like that. It, it was it, narrow. It's it so narrow, and the walls just kind of closed yeah. in. It looked really dangerous. There didn't look to be any space for a driver to go off the track, as did happen a couple of times. Verstappen drove basically through a corner well, this is and it. came out the other side. And I want to play a, a little bit of audio here, because the other thing perhaps we haven't neglected on the show and we haven't discussed at length is, I watched it today, the, the press conference after the race, for, for, for you, Son, on for perhaps other listeners who don't follow F1 closely. At the end of the race, the three individuals who finished on the podium, first, second and third, will come in for the press conference. And Formula One have done this beautifully. They don't shy away from the difficult questions. So you've got the three men, obviously social distanced, of course, but they're sat with one another and they're getting the difficult questions. I want to start with you, for example, Max Verstappen. Difficult question comes. He'll get a question asked about Lewis Hamilton, who is sat right next to him and he's got to deliver... And they do, invariably, an honest answer. The question will then go to Lewis Hamilton. And I want to play this little excerpt because I think Formula One, since Liberty Media took over, they're nailing this now. They're absolutely on point with this. This is a question that came in from a fan. We're going to play this in full. It's Hamilton and Max for you, Rob. We're going to play this. I just love it. The difference in answers, because if you missed the race last night, there was an incident at lap 37. Max Verstappen, as you rightly point out, Rob, got an advantage by cutting through a corner. He was given a five-second penalty, and at this point, Lewis Hamilton was being allowed to overtake him. He slowed down. Lewis Hamilton went in the back of him. Thankfully, they were able to continue. Of course, Lewis Hamilton would go on and win the race. But play this in full. Take a little listen. Earlier this season, you were avoiding any collisions, and you both insisted you could race hard but fair. That's changed, and there have now been several flashpoints. Is this inevitable with such an intense battle? Or do you believe something's changed in how you're racing that's caused it? Question to you two. Um, just I don't think I've changed the way that I race. I think we've we've seen multiple incidents this year where the where it, it, even like with Brazil, where we're supposed to do our racing on track in between the white lines, and that's um, that the rules haven't been clear. Um, from from the stewards that uh, those things have been allowed, so that's continued. Um, from my understanding, is I, I know that I can't overtake someone and go off track, and then keep the position. But I think that's that's well known between all us drivers. But um, it uh, it doesn't apply to one of one of us, I guess. Max, Max, please your thoughts. Um, well, I mean, um, I find it interesting that I am the one who gets a penalty when both of us run outside of the white lines. Um, you know, in, in Brazil it was fine, and now suddenly I get a penalty for it. Well, you could clearly see both didn't make the corner, uh, but it's fine. I mean, I also don't really spend too much time on it. Um, you know, we have to move forward. I mean, we're equal on points now, and I think that's really exciting, of course, for the, for the whole championship and, and Formula 1 in general. But I, I said it already on my in-lap. I mean, I think lately we're talking more about wide lines and penalties than actually proper Formula 1 racing, and that's, I think, a little bit of a, of a shame. I love both of that. So Lewis uncomfortable. Yeah. He actually turned to his left and looked at Valtteri Bottas, his Mercedes teammate, when he, he's saying there that, as far as I'm concerned, all the drivers, and he's looking Valtteri for validation on that. All the drivers are sticking to the rules, and then the pause, except one, doesn't look at Max, and then you're like, oh, and then Max comes back with that answer. And you know what? I appreciate rules are in place for a reason. It's in any sport. 
But I, I must say, I do tend to agree with Max that racing, go out there and race. If it's wheel to wheel, and of course you've got to do it. Safety of the drivers, and I keep coming back to that, I don't want to sound cliche. Safety of the drivers is paramount. But yeah, let them race. And in the case of Max Verstappen, you've got someone who's right on the limit. Lewis, if he was here now, would say, yeah, he's right on the limit. No, he said, it in, he said it, he's above the limit. He said, he's above the limit. He said in, in, his, in his interview last night with a one-on-one with uh, one of the broadcasters in the UK, he said that uh, dangerous. he is repeatedly driving above the limit of what is safe. Yeah. And, and Dame, we'll, we'll, we'll speak to him on this in just a second. But listening to both of them, no love loss. Absolutely no love loss between the two of them. And we're set now on Sunday. But, uh, Okay, so how would you resolve the situation where Max goes through the corner? Well, you have to. Rules are rules, right? The rules are in place. So so in, in that case, he goes through the corner, keeps his position. That's an unfair advantage. If you watch that uh, turn again, he's claiming that they both missed the white marks. Lewis actually waits to the last minute and breaks, gets to the corner. Max doesn't. Max ain't giving up first place at that moment in time. He, he waits too late. He can't hit the biting point from the breaking standpoint. He goes through the corner and keeps his place. That's why the five-second penalty came he had to cede position he didn't do that and then of course Hamilton went in the back of him and thankfully for the sake of this championship tussle yeah, thankfully I mean, he was able to continue uh, and Damien who we're speaking to next did comment how lucky Hamilton got that he wasn't forced to pull out of the race following oh, exactly. that collision yeah, yeah, no just doubt. imagine had he gone into the back and, and he'd done irreparable damage to the wing and he'd have had to stop Yeah, title would have and that would have been it and then, then there really would have been controversy there would have been a sour taste in the mouth there if that was how Max Verstappen but won just it just on that point of the fact that they're all sitting close to one another 4-0-0 and it got me thinking what would you take from another sport because I would love Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, in the case of football, press conferences where they're sat next to one another after games. Just be that little bit of extra needle. The Off Script Podcast. A man who was commentating on it all on the events in Jeddah last night was Damien Reed. I was riveted. I have to admit, I did feel a little bit of sympathy for Damien because there was so much going oh, on. It was hard to keep track of everything. It certainly was. There's no doubt about that. But he does, as he often does, a sterling job in making it, uh, I guess, manageable and making it all... Well, you know what he was doing? He was putting an extra little bit of drama in what was an already dramatic scene. Delighted to be joined by Damien Reed this evening. And Damien, you still got that voice intact? It's hanging in there, guys. It's hanging in there. But there were, I didn't have to add too much drama. You could have written a book just oh. from last night's race alone. Uh, and Damo, I mean, you obviously know the sport better than almost anyone out there. Uh, were you struggling to follow what was going on? Because <laughs> I, I, I was completely lost at times during that race. I didn't, I didn't have a clue what was happening. Was it difficult to keep pace? I was doing my best, and and we had we had uh, people in our ear. We had uh, uh, monitors popping up with with information, and it was uh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's it, very rarely have we had the situation where we've had you know two red flags in the same race plus safety cars. Um, I mean, to give you a very quick synopsis on it, uh, where there were six crashes, there were five. Um, there was a five second penalty obviously given out. There were four virtual safety cars. Uh, Two drivers going to the final round, three different leaders. It's it was just yes, it was almost impossible to keep keep track of. Yeah, well, let's unpack it all then, Demo. You say all of that four virtual uh, virtual safety cars, two red flags. So I guess a lot of people listening to this might say, right, why was that? The track itself. Give me your feedback. What's the feedback been from the F1 kind of fraternity? Good track or indifferent? Well, the thing is, is that you speak to the drivers, and I think. With the exception, I think of Esteban Ocon. I don't, I, I, from memory, 
All the drivers loved, absolutely loved it. Valtteri Bottas said it was dot, dot, dot cool when he when he first went out. And Danny Ricciardo said something very similar. Uh, Lewis Hamilton said last night it was an awesome track. You know, So you've just got to go off the feedback of the guys who are actually behind the wheel. They uh, they love the, the, the challenge of it. It is a dangerous track, but they are the best drivers. So you drive according to the conditions. That's what you always come back to. And, uh, and, and the feedback from those on the track was they just thought it was a fantastic track. But because there's not a whole lot of runoff. You know, you have a car that goes off into the wall, it will bounce back onto the track and that brings out safety car. It throws debris back onto the track. It doesn't get caught up in the huge sand trap that we find on European tracks. So that's what bred the safety car situation. It did look, there were, there were some parts of the track that looked incredibly claustrophobic, Damo. I was getting a little bit <laughs> anxious just watching it. God knows what it was like to actually be in a car and actually drive that track. I mean, the, it was high octane and no quarter was given between Verstappen and Hamilton. Fascinated to see and, and listen to your commentary as well about how lucky Hamilton got after that collision that he was able to not only complete the race, but overtake and maintain his position and actually even extend away from uh, Max Verstappen. I I mean, in, in your learned eye, how, how lucky was he to, to get away with a collision like that? Yeah, I mean, he was pretty lucky. I mean, in terms of the track width, it's, it's, it's wider than Baku, it's wider than Singapore, but it's just, it has that impression. Uh, but yeah, I mean... the I don't know what they make that uh, that Mercedes out of, it's cast iron or something, but how he got away with that and finished the race, if he had even, because, you know, obviously the front wing was severely damaged, and at a track like that where you're, it's a, it's a weird track because it's a high-speed track that requires speed and downforce, and without that, then you have difficulty handling the car. So that, so absolute massive credit to Lewis to hang on to the car with no front wing. He lost a very important part of the aerodynamic package on the car and still brought it in, but he had no choice. If he had have pitted, then he would have dropped out of the points and the championship would have been over. So it was a combination of luck and a lot of skill on Lewis's part that he managed to uh, to, to, to bring that car home. It was just, just staggering. Where are you at on this debate, Damon? We've just been having it briefly there. I mean, Lewis Hamilton, it says that all the drivers, apart from one, are towing the party line. Max Verstappen is a bit nonplussed, a shrug of the shoulders as if to say, don't like all the rules. We are Formula One drivers at the end of the day. We should be allowed to race. Where are you sat on this particular debate? Well, look, I mean, the, the guys are playing a war of words. It takes two to tango. I'm, I'm going to be playing a little bit devil's advocate in this, and I'm going to say that Lewis definitely had a part to play in, in the way that that panned out. Um, because, you know, you look at the facts, there was, a, there was the, the crash on lap 37. Now, Max was told to slow and let Lewis part strategically was the key word from the radio. Now, of course, if you don't do it that way, then you're a bit of an idiot. You you, you have to play to the rules. So he he decided to do it before the DRS zones so that he could repass again when he got the DRS zone. Now, he did leave a lot of, a lot, a lot of room there for, for, for Lewis to go past. Now, the thing in my, in my mind was it was a green flag, full racing situation, and yet Lewis also braked and slowed down. In fact, he knocked it back four gears. He was in fourth gear sitting behind Max. Um, under a normal situation, if you're diving for a pass, you would have sailed past at 100 kilometers an hour on top of the speed that they were doing. But uh, but he decided, because he didn't want to then be the sitting duck in the DRS zone by being in front. So Lewis also hung back. So I, I don't see it all as being, you know, all on Max's shoulders. Now, I, I deliberately didn't sort of make any calls during the, during the broadcast last night. So I wanted to wait until we got the data traces and the information. 
We got the information today, and it did show that Max did put his foot on the brake. He, he resulted in a 2.4G deceleration. So he did brake test him, which is wrong, and he deserves the penalty. But um, but it, it, it wasn't 100%. On, on Max's shoulders, there was the there was the issue, the fact that Lewis backed out of it as well to sit behind him, and then just chose when to pass. And there was also the issue that Mercedes didn't send information through to Lewis in time to tell him that Lewis that, that Max is pulling over to let him pass. So there was also a, a communication problem from Mercedes' wall to get that information to Lewis as well. I mean, all told, it just leads the most perfect. We couldn't possibly have scripted it any better for for the Etihad Airways Abu Dhabi Grand Prix demo, where changes have been made to the track. I mean, the, the Yas Marina circuit track, in contrast to the track we witnessed at Jeddah last night, uh, has, has often been described as being a, a pretty standard, a pretty difficult track to overtake on, where we've seen processional races play out. And yet, I guess that would place even more emphasis on sheer pace and performance and quality qualifying because clearly starting on pole is absolutely paramount to uh, you've got to assume that these two are probably going to be on the front row of the grid barring some kind of disaster in qualifying so where are you leaning towards in this coin flip I, I honestly I can't flip a coin at the moment on this one it is it is absolutely going I think we've said it a few times on the on the program that it's it's going to get down to after the second pit stop to decide the world championship on this one um, you know the track has been modified and from uh, guys I've spoken to who have raced there recently on, in the touring car categories they're up to 12 seconds a lap faster than they were last year so you know it is a much faster track it's 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 a, this will be the fifth time that the title has been decided in Abu Dhabi um but it's the first time in 47 years that we've gone to the final race with the two drivers tied for first place. And we're going back to Emerson Fittipaldi with McLaren and Clay Regazzoni and Ferrari on the year that Jackie Stewart retired. So this is how long it's been since we've had a championship this tight. Come on, Demo. I'm not allowing that. I'm not <laughs> allowing you to get splinters on your backside. Verstappen or Hamilton? Is it the experience of Hamilton who looks as if he's got the momentum? Or does this young buck from the Netherlands stop him in his tracks and get the job done? Okay. Okay. Based, based on what I saw uh, on Saturday in qualifying, Max Verstappen's qualifying lap absolutely left me gobsmacked. And if you look at even Fernando Alonso, I was in the middle of an interview with Dutch yeah. television, and his eyes were the size of dinner plates. He stopped the interview and could not believe what he was watching. Based on that commitment that I saw from Max, I would have to say that Max would, if it's going to get down to this, Max is, is is the man that will probably be on pole position, which gives him a strong chance to be the to be the winner there. Now they're going in nine to eight wins in favour of of Max. So if it all ends pear shaped and they're even on points, Max will be the world champion. But uh, but at this stage, if it if it goes in the favour of of um, uh, still on even points and and Lewis is is the victor, then they're nine each. But then. But it goes back to the first winner, and that was Max. So it, it's still in Max's, it, it's still in his pocket. But uh, but I, I don't know. I, based on the, on what on his on his performance and qualifying, I'd have to say Max. he would be a very brave man to get pole position over him on Saturday, and that will be a strong indicator for Sunday. And to make it even more enticing, Hamilton has won the race five times, but the man who won it last year 
was Max Verstappen. Can't so wait. it is so finely poised. It is a joke. Well done, Damo. That was brilliant commentary last night. Really enjoyed it. And we look forward to another instalment, the finale, this coming Sunday down in Abu Dhabi. And I'm sure we're going to catch up with you around about the same time next week, Damo. So thank you so much once again. Next for... week, we're going to be speaking to Damo on Thursday night. Well, I, I would imagine so, yeah, indeed. Sorry, Damo. Block your diary for that one. All right, cheers for that. I'll be there. I'll be there for every second of it. Thanks, guys. Top Top man. Stuff. Damian Reed, brilliant stuff. Brilliant. NBC Action, they are the official broadcasters in the Middle East. Damian Reed in the commentary booth. What a lucky man he will be Sunday. It's Verstappen and Hamilton for the F1 world title. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 